Citizen Podcast. Hey everybody, my name is Carrie Kelly and welcome to another episode of Citizen Podcast, where we are reimagining citizenship and exploring how we show up for the well-being of everyone. What does it mean to be a woke household? Well, that's what we're talking about today with Paula Mendoza. In this conversation, we will explore the art of activism and the creative ways we can open the heart of America and resist with joy. This is good times. So we put out a call on Facebook to professional musicians, most of them, and said, hey, we wanted to get together and sing in community. Come join us. The first rehearsal, 30 women showed up, and it was so special and so beautiful, and everyone felt healed and empowered, and everyone was like, this is amazing. Next week, we had another rehearsal. A different 60 women showed up, and we were like, wow, okay, something's happening, and it's joyful, and we also talk politics and joy and politics and joy, and both of those things, again, can exist in the same world and in the same moment where you can be laughing, and then you can be talking about organizing around DACA. And I think it's because people realize, like you, they want joy in their life. They need joy in their life. Paula Mendoza, filmmaker, author, mother, and resistor, is taking on some of the biggest issues facing humanity, like immigration and poverty and its impact particularly on women and children. And she believes that artists have a unique and essential role in catalyzing change and opening the heart of America. In our conversation, Paula talks about our capacity to hold two truths at the same time. And she really embodies that. She is relentless in her resistance to the racist policies of this administration, to defending and protecting the undocumented community, and to fighting for the freedom and well-being of women and children. But she is simultaneously passionate in her expression, ecstatic in song and dance, and generous in her love as an organizer and mother. And she shows us that we can be many things at the same time, and we need to. One of the things that really hit me in this conversation is the essential role of joy in our activism. And I've struggled with this, especially as a white, cisgender, straight person with lots of privilege points. My activism has been intense and serious and sacrificial. I didn't give myself permission for joy. I was righteous in my commitment. But I was constantly burned out and tired. I became snarky and cynical, and I forgot how to have fun. What I learned from Paula, and what I'm starting to practice myself, is that joy itself is a resistance. In our conversation, Paula said, without joy, you can only resist for so long before you break. And communities on the front lines are really modeling this. Joy is the medicine. It keeps us resilient, it keeps us inspired, and it keeps us going. When we claim our joy, it is a radical act of defiance. In it, we affirm our existence and worthiness. Our expression in and of itself is disruptive to the status quo that tries to get us to be complicit and conform. When we sing and dance and draw and sculpt, we are shaping a new story of what is possible for ourselves and one another. One that is centered in love, justice, and interdependence. Welcome, Paula. 
Thank you for Thank having me. Thank you for me. having us in your beautiful home. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. Which I recognize, by the way, because it was featured in Mother Magazine recently. Yes, it was. Which was like a super fancy <laughs> layout, like gorgeous, professional, the celebrity-like um, centerfold. <laughs> My house has never looked nicer, I have to say, than in those pictures. Well, what I love about this article is that they talked about the, the, the theme of the article was what it means to be a woke household. Yes. <laughs> and I've never heard that term. What does that mean? I'm not really sure, except for the fact maybe if you look at our bookshelves and you go into my son's books, it's all about um, trying to be woke. So, I mean, Michael and my partner, Michael Skolnick, and I have been together for, for a very long time. Um, and we have had the pleasure to, we met when we were 22 years old. And sadly, we are no longer 22. <laughs> um, so we've had the pleasure of literally growing up together, of um, going from young adults into parents. And that in and of itself is is a beautiful ride, a complicated ride nonetheless, but a beautiful ride. But with that, our, our understanding of the world has really grown together. And so when we decided to have a child, Mateo Ali, named after Muhammad Ali, kind of cliche for our woke home as we have Muhammad Ali looking over us. <laughs> or perfect. Yeah, exactly. Um, we obviously brought the values and wanted to bring the values of how we saw the world and how we experienced the world and what we want for the world with our son. And really having Mateo in our lives has really um, crystallized what's important to teach a child about the world. Um, and, and for us, what we've realized with a boy in particular is... What's the most important thing for me um, is compassion. And so in that concept of woke household, we're constantly talking about compassion and, and opening your heart. So Mateo, he's, he's, he's obviously joy, but one of his favorite, my favorite qualities of his that he's had since he was, I don't even know, one years old, is when other children cry, he cries. He can't handle when other children are crying in empathy. front of him. His empathy is enormous. And, um, or if he'll accidentally like be playing at the park with a friend, he hurts a friend, the friend falls, and the friend cries. The friend cries, Mateo starts crying, and then the friend stops crying, and Mateo cries for another hour. <laughs> like It is long. Oh, he's special. He's so special. But what he says, when, the way he explains his feelings is, it broke my heart open. And so like that, that to me is, is the purpose of a woke household mm -hmm. is to pass that concept of compassion to my child. Well, and I don't know this to be statistical. I'm sure you could speak to this, but what I thought was really significant about this article is that I imagine that there are so many mothers in the movement, right? When you mm -hmm. look at the women's march and who makes up the women's march, um, in my experience, I've come across so many mothers waking up right mm -hmm. to injustice and finding their voice and hitting the street and calling their congressmen and then you have this wave of kids right we just had the national walkout mm -hmm. um hitting the street so there is something i think really important about having a conversation not just about what it means to be a woke citizen or mm -hmm. what it means to be a woke activist or a woke ally but what it is to parent mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in the context of this moment yeah i think Clearly, um, so the resistance, the studies that have been done so far, um, there the the percentage of women that are calling into the, their senators and their congressmen and their congresswomen, um, the study that they released recently said that eighty seven percent of those phone calls were made by women. Um, they didn't talk about 
parents versus non-parents. But if you think about that, and we know that calling Congress and your Senate senators is an effective way in which to make sure that they are voting how you want them to vote. That's right, holding them accountable. Exactly. So 87% of that is being led by women. It's an astounding number. If we also look to um, those that are running for office. So uh, in 2016, Emily's List had about 500 women inquire around wanting to run for office. That was the year when we were supposed to have the first female president um, elected into office. So obviously, female pride and being engaged was very, very high at that time, 500 people. In 2017, um, they had over 25,000 women inquire um, around running for office. So again, how many of those women are mothers? I don't know. But what I can say is that at the heart of the resistance is women. And I think that part of the success of the walkout is the fact that students took this into their own hands and decided that this was an issue that they wanted to stand against. But I also firmly believe it was conversations and support from their mothers. The fact of sending your child to school, in particular in this incident, is a fear that all parents have yeah. if it's not safe. The fact of... Particularly if you're a parent of a, a child of color. Of course, and that's exactly what I was going to say. If you are a parent of a child that is walking down the street and the neighborhood is not safe. That is a fear that you are living with and it is your worst nightmare. So I, I feel that part of the success is also that con- that that connection to child and mother and saying, yes, go and do. Yes, go and have a voice. Yes, stand up to potentially being suspended or detention. Or I read that in the South, there were some folks that were having, were, were, were um, being, uh, their school was giving them corporal punishment. Yeah, for for, for walking out. Yep, because it was. And then there were kids that that were kneeling and right, like kids got innovative mm-hmm. <laughs> about the way in which they were um, willing to break the rules. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that related to parents yeah. and parenting, not to not taking away any of their power, but saying like there is something there. Um, so I think that that mothers, in particular, in this moment, um, across all spectrums, have a connection to being involved in the resistance. It's personal. It's personal to fight in this moment because they're fighting for their kids. They're fighting for the planet. They're fighting for the future of their kids. So I want to hear about your personal story of growing up. Um, You were born in Bogota, Colombia, came to the U.S. when you were three years old. And I just recently watched Entre Nos, which is a documentary that you made about Mm -hmm. your mother and starred in Mm -hmm. about your mother um, and her journey from Colombia. And the story is incredible. It's beautiful and heartbreaking and poignant. And it tells the story of her relentless Mm -hmm. um, commitment to making a life for you and for your brothers. Um, And now you're a mother, the mother of Mateo, as you mentioned. How has becoming a mother mm. changed your relationship to your own story and your relationship with your mother and how you got here? So uh, part of the story in there, just to give the audience a little bit more context, is when my mom, my brother, and I first arrived to the United States, my father abandoned us very quickly after arriving to the United States. So my mom's relentless struggle was making sure that her two children um, survived. We were homeless at a time. We were on welfare. We lived in the projects, and 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 the reason we survived is because of my mother's extraordinary love and her extraordinary determination to to not just survive, but to make our lives better. So both my brother and I have college degrees, master's degrees. Both my brother and I have a family. So all of that to say is now as a mom, and it's interesting. I was just having this thought. My father left my brother and I 
just about at Mateo's age, when my brother was six, Mateo's Whoa. five. So now it's I see it from a perspective of what does he understand his yeah. relationship to his father if his father were to just leave, though he would never. What would that do to a five-year-old? At what would this that do developmental to, yeah, stage. What would that do to a six-year-old? And so it's a very deep um, understanding. But also, my journey with my father has been very long. I don't speak to him. I haven't spoke to him in, in I don't know, 20 years for a very long time. But in that process of making that movie, a surprise was that happened was that I was able to forgive my father mm. um, because I saw him not as the monster I thought he was my entire life, but I saw him as a very flawed human being and as a weak man. And now as my son is about to be six years old, I even have more compassion for my father because to pack up and leave that child that you've had a relationship with for six years is painful like you had to be really in a bad fucked up place I don't think it's Mm -hmm. just he's the monster I think he was just in a really scared place um and so that's kind of where my where I am now in my healing process around having more compassion for someone that did something horrible um and I think it's important for people to understand at least for me anyways having compassion does not mean that one has to have a relationship with that person that you have compassion with right so like you can free yourself of being like, well, if I have compassion for them, does that mean I have to talk with them? I'm very clear that I don't want a relationship with him, but my heart still hurts for a man that made a decision that he's also had to pay for his entire life. Right. Yeah. Um, is that the healing power of art, do you think, and storytelling? I know that you've said that artists have the power to open up the heart of mm-hmm. America. And it sounds like you even had this transformational journey making this movie to to finding redemption and forgiveness for your father. Like what what is the role of artists in, in this moment in the movement? Yeah, I think absolutely um art has the power and the potential to heal. Like we've almost the way I never had imagined it. I made that movie, I made Entre Nos as a celebration to my mother, as to, to shine a light on the unsung heroes of America. I did not make that movie ever expecting myself to forgive my father. Yeah. And I made that movie when I was 30 years old. I t- finished it and I had had literally 23 years of pain and anger and frustration around my relationship with my father. And it was the making of that movie that allowed me to release that pain and anger. Even though I had been in therapy, all the, it was that. And I... And it was a gift that I gave to myself that I never imagined I would have. Um, And with that, I realized, oh, art can heal deep, deep wounds. Um, And now where we are now, eight years later, is I do believe that in this moment in time, the role of the artist is critical. The role of the artist is to um, expand the heart of America because what I believe is happening in this country at this moment is that we are suffering from a mass contraction of the Mm -hmm. heart and policy can't open up our heart. Mm -hmm. Voting can't open up our heart. What can open up our heart to our neighbors, to the other, to the person that we don't know is art, is hearing their stories, is, is, is planting a seed of love and compassion into someone's heart that's closing off and fighting and letting that seed grow and pushing that heart open and expanding it, even if it's just a little bit. And I think that, that artists um, have to take responsibility to do that mm-hmm. um, and, and to create art that does that. And that kind of art, in my eyes, is subtle and beautiful and entertaining and heartbreaking. It's not propaganda. I'm not saying propaganda has its place 
Amplifier Foundation is a great organization that does incredible art, that does propaganda art in many ways. And I'm okay with that. Like, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a tool. Of it's the a movement. tool. Exactly. Yeah. But what I'm talking about is something at a higher frequency with regards yeah. to the heart. And I think that we're seeing that. We're seeing that in Moonlight as an example. I think that that was a beautiful example yeah. of a film that was not created as a resistance film, but ultimately did open up the heart of, of, of black gay men that were poor, like shun such a extraordinary light on that story in such a different way that we're used to seeing. Um, and that's just one example of obviously many. Well, and I think that, you know, um, the part that you're speaking to, because I think there's a role for transactional politics, like the voting and the the lobbying and the calling your senators and the signing. Like we need that, right, to push up against the system. Um, but that's often short term mm -hmm. and limited. And the kind of change that you're talking about, and we talk about this a lot at Citizen Well, is like tra real transformational change that, to your point, can't be controlled. Like mm -hmm. it's emergent, right? Mm -hmm. Like into for me, like art and even relationship, right, and being in community with people. And, and being engaged on the front lines, right, with people who have been impacted, learning the how to be an ally and a co-conspirator, like all of that relational work to me is the work that um, unlocks, to your point, the unexpected, mm -hmm. the beautiful, the vulnerable, the deep <laughs> crevices that actually give us access to that healing on a like bigger level. So I know, you know, along those lines, you have been shaped um, in your life um, by your experience, and that has obviously made you a, a fierce advocate for um, immigration rights. Mm -hmm. um, and last year on September 5th, um, the day that Trump rescinded DACA mm -hmm. for 800,000 undocumented youth, you and I <laughs> and a very courageous group of dreamers and allies blocked the intersection in front of Trump Tower for 30 minutes and landed ourselves in jail. Yes. <laughs> um, and I know that wasn't the first arrest for either one of us. Um, but for me, it was one of the most beautiful demonstrations of solidarity that I've ever been a part of. Um, because at one point, I remember sitting um, on, the, on the ground um, locked in arms, um, you know, um, mm -hmm. chanting and singing together. Mm -hmm. And the crowd formed a halo. Do you remember mm -hmm. this around us? That mm -hmm. was like 15, 20, 25 people deep. Yep. And, and we were doing chant and response and, and the cops were sort of barricading them away, but it was like, as if we had this like protective mm -hmm. <laughs> force field around us. And it was like, I mean, in all of my activism and demonstration and civil disobedience, like one of the most potent moments. And it was so great to, to share that with you. And yet <laughs> the DACA deadline now has passed, mm -hmm. um, leaving so many people and so many families in limbo. And I just know that you have spent so much of your life, you've mm -hmm. lived this experience as a, an immigrant coming to the US. You've spent so much of your life um, advocating for the lives, the well-being, the mm -hmm. liberation, the belonging of our immigrant communities within the U.S. What comes next? Yeah, you know, the the past few years um, in the immigrant space, immigrant rights space has been has have been very very painful, um, and in particular. And I'm talking about specifically from the moment that Donald Trump announced his election. Obviously, we know that the day that he announced the election and how he announced the election was by throwing um, Mexican culture, Mexican people 
under the bus by saying that we were rapists um, or we, they, however we want to say it. I'm not Mexican, I'm Colombian, but nonetheless, I grew up in LA, so I identify with Mexicans Mm -hmm. in in lots of ways. (laughs) But the point is, is that from that moment in time, he started his campaign by hating undocumented immigrants, in particular Mexicans. Um, and we saw for the for the next two years of his campaign um, that he was willing and able and found joy, I think, in in hating undocumented immigrants and riling up that that hate and that fear. And so and leveraging it to his base. Sure. Yeah, he he won the election on the backs of hating undocumented immigrants and Muslims in particular, those two groups. Um, he tried to strip us of our humanity. He tried to uh, strip us of our dignity. He he tried to um, demonize us. And, and for his base, he succeeded. And then beyond that, when he was elected, um, the fear I felt. So I came home, and I'll get to your question eventually, but I came home that night of the election. I was at the... <laughs> The worst place to be in the planet, which was um, the Javits Center. <laughs> yeah, pretty horrible. I came home at one in the morning, straight to my son's room. I kissed him on the forehead, and I whispered in his ear as he was asleep, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. And I was saying us sorry for a lot of reasons. I was saying sorry because we had failed him as a country, because we had failed all children like him. And I was also saying sorry to all of the people, all of the young kids whose parents are undocumented, because... I knew what the fear was, and I knew the real uh, terror that happened that night on November 8th. Um, and the next day, I had lots of calls from lots of friends of, what do we do? And November 8th till today has been another horrible roller coaster of uncertainty. And the undocumented community, again, has been um, used and abused uh, by the Trump administration by the Republicans, and also by the Democrats. Um, And so the undocumented community has been a pawn in a really fucked up way um, because they're using the undocumented community as a political pawn and forgetting that there's 800,000 young people that are attached to that, that are living in a moment of fear that they will be deported. And we have seen DACA recipients, people that have DACA, that are supposed to have protection, that were granted protection by the United States government. We have seen them detained and we have seen them deported. So our government, once again, has lied and gone back on an agreement, on a treaty, on on something that that people here in the United States that I believe are citizens really, um, and we can talk about that more in depth, have put their trust and their faith in the government and the government has has backstabbed them. And so where we are now in is a moment of um hurt and deep reflection but also in a moment of reorganizing and being very focused. You know, I think what's extraordinary is the the United We Dream which is one of the the larger um organizations that works with DACA, they're their focus for the for the summer is um, a summer of joyful rebellion, and I love that term because we expect the community to be broken, 
and we expect them to to be in despair and yet they are defiant even to that they are defiant and they are saying no we are going to continue to fight but we are going to fight with joy and love and and fortitude um which is what we need to be able to do in order to ultimately win and i think that we will win um eventually i know that for us to win for us to get a permanent solution which is a law that will protect these young people and beyond we will have lost a lot of people along the way mm-hmm. in that that they are casualties and that breaks my heart that individual people that have children and our children some of them themselves lives will be derailed lost and destroyed in order for for the majority of people to have some protection and the only reason that has happened is because democrats and republicans have refused to be as brave as these young people are. And I say that all the time. If these politicians had an ounce of bravery of what the dreamers mm-hmm, have, mm-hmm. we would be so much farther along. We would have permanent protection. But well, and cowards. resilience. They just keep going, yeah. you know, despite it all. Yeah, because what is their, they have no other choice. And that is, that is the reality of, yeah, I'm currently reading right now the autobiography of John Lewis. Um, and... Obviously, they were political pawns in in the 60s as well, and their humanity was stripped and their dignity. They tried to take away their dignity, and they kept going at the expense of people's lives being lost and destroyed and hurt. Um, but they had resilience because what because the other option was just unacceptable. And I think that that is the same moment where we are with dreamers. They have resilience, and they will keep going because the option to live in the shadows and to be forgotten about and to be having to having no power and no future in this country is unacceptable. What is it going to take for so-called allies? And I'm thinking about people who have the privilege, and I say that in quotations because I want to talk about that with you, of, of citizenship, mm-hmm. whether that is by virtue of the color of their skin or where they were born or what language they speak or what documents they have, right? Because we know that that's the way we define citizenship in this Mm -hmm. country, unfortunately. Um, What is it going to take for those people? um, Like, what do you want to say to those people in terms of like what we need from people? And I'm thinking a little bit about what you were saying before about empathy, Mm -hmm. like, and how we have to open our hearts to what we can understand Mm -hmm. because of our privilege, but also like, what do we need to do? Right. So there are specific things that you can do. Um, You folks need to get educated on the issue. It's a very complicated issue, but you just need to know the basics. So go to United We Dream and get educated. Donate to United We Dream because what's happening right now is that, again, it's very complicated, but at this very moment, people that have DACA can reapply for DACA. And they need fees. And they need fees. And yep. it's very expensive. It's $500. Um, and we're talking about a, a, a community that in general is very young. Like that's the point of dreamers, that they're students, most of them. So we all remember our student days that we were broke and $500 yep. was our rent. Yep. So you're asking someone to like pay a fee in rent. So go and donate specifically to that and show up to marches. That's really important. Um, again, follow United We Dream on social media and they will tell you what what's going on. Um, so those are like the practical things of how to be an ally. Um, and and at, on a more general level, um, and this is what folks don't have an understanding about because it's so complicated. It's even complicated for me at times, but it is no secret that there are two white supremacists that are creating the immigration uh, strategy for the future of the United States, Steve Miller and Gorka. 
Um, Gorka's mm-hmm. no longer in the administration, but obviously he's still around. An and operative. Yeah, mm-hmm. but Steve Miller is 100% involved. And, and what they are trying to do, and DACA is the first step in the strategy to their ultimate strategy, is they are trying to cut legal immigration into the United States. And the immigration that they want in the United States, they want it to be specifically of European descent. And they want and and the reason behind that is, you know, we can look and see that that um, immigration into the United States over the past 20 years has been predominantly brown and black people. Um, and, and we know that the studies are showing that brown and black people will very soon surpass um, white people in this country. And what does that do to a in power population and population and in, not wealth? Exactly. Exactly. Very important. What does that do to a power structure that is built on the idea that white men in particular are the ones that own this country, right? So you're seeing them be fearful. So, and I can go into this in much more detail, but we don't have the time. Just recently, it was about maybe three weeks ago, um, for the first time in my lifetime, for sure, um, there was a law that was passed. It was actually in the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court ruled that this law was was legal, that legal immigrants, right, so folks that have green cards, um, can be held in detention indefinitely. I saw that. Right? So that means that in around immigrant issues. So that means if I have a green card and there's an issue with my green card, I get pulled over because of a tail light and they're like, oh, there's something funky with your green card. We're going to put you in jail and f- until we figure it out. You can stay in jail for years on end until they figure out whether or not your green card issue is correct or incorrect. It might have been just a glitch in the system, right? And so that is the first time that that is the first time ever in the United States, um, well I shouldn't say ever, that because in the sixties it happened all the time, but that an a immigrant in this country that is here with all the appropriate documents can just sit in jail for years. Um, and, and that is a scary thought because that is a slippery slope into what can happen eventually, right? So, so there have been folks that want to get rid of the 14th Amendment. And that's a crazy thought to amend the Constitution. The 14th Amendment is that anyone born in the United States has citizenship. Anyone. What, you know, folks like to refer to as quote unquote chain migration, right? Um, so that's part of it. And so, that is a first step down a very long road. I'm not saying that it happens next, but down a very long road of getting to a place where uh, uh, white men feel much more secure in this country when they're able to manage, contain, and curtail the immigration of what Donald Trump refers to as shithole countries, um, what I refer to as most of the rest of the world. I want to give a shout out to our community of supporters on Patreon, without whom this podcast wouldn't be possible. Citizen Podcast is reimagining citizenship for all of us. Not the kind that requires documents and papers, but an everyday practice of how we take care of each other and the whole of society. We're daring to ask hard questions about who we are and who we are to one another, and what's possible when we show up for the well-being of the whole. But making a good podcast takes a village, and so we're building one on Patreon. And what we love about this platform is that it's mutual. It's about supporting one another, 
By joining this community, you get lots of good stuff from us, like practice tools and meditation, community forums that inspire conversation, and lifestyle content that you can trust. And not only does it keep us going, but it keeps us honest and real and pushing the envelope of courageous conversations that are independent, transparent, and authentic. You can opt in for as little as $1 per month or $5 or $10 and so on. And think of it this way, for the equivalent of one coffee per month or one yoga class or one dinner, you get to be a part of something bigger, a call to action to become better citizens for humanity. So check us out on patreon.com forward slash C-T-Z-N-W-E-L-L and build with us as we create a culture of well-being that works for everyone. So let's talk about um, the, the culture of citizenship, because I think to your point, it, it does have a lot to do with the culture of white supremacy, the culture of oppression in this country, um, the culture of how we value um, not just like citizenship, but citizens mm-hmm. um, and who has a right to be here and belong. Mm-hmm. And we're we're constantly contemplating this issue, right? Because, you know, when we were even talking about like the name citizen, we really struggled with that because we know the impact that that word and that term has on so many people. Mm-hmm. And we by no mean want to take that word for granted. And so we know that in the system of now, um, the concept of citizenship has been reduced to where you were born, what documents you have, um, building a wall, mm-hmm. Um And I know Jose Vargas, who you know, um, another fierce advocate for immigrant rights, has been known to say, I would actually argue that undocumented people in this country show Americans what it is to be American. Mm. Because it's something you earn. It's something you fight for. It's not just something that lands in your lap. Mm -hmm. And so what do you think we need? Like, how do we reimagine or reclaim what citizenship really means for us as allies, people, humans in this country? I think what we've been living through for the past two years um, or a year and a half since Donald Trump was elected president is how we reimagine and we, we rethink of citizenship. I'm talking about those on the left and the right. Uh, I don't agree with anything from the right, to be honest. I I am extremely far, far to the left. But I I think that as the left engages in the citizen, in in the civic element of this country of making it better, and that is running for office, that is protesting, that is walking out, that is making phone calls, that is, um, being creative of how we want to see this country and and putting an effort into how we want to move this country forward. That, to me, is citizenship. On the right as well, even though I disagree with with their vision of the world, I think that it's important for for them to also engage in, in those elements and in that way. So the Tea Party was an extraordinary example of how they engaged as citizens. Um, And Super and, grassroots, on the ground, yeah, personal. Gave us essentially Donald Trump. Again, yeah. I don't agree with it, but I, I respect their engagement in the political process and wanting to create a better country in their world, in their eyes, right? Um, and, and I think that's where we have to be inspired to have citizenship, right? Yeah. And 
that excites me and that's where we need to move forward. Does that mean that it's not just resistance? It's like creation. It's Of course, yeah. of course. I think it's critically important at this moment to resist, but we are moving into a space um, and I think that we're going to win in 2018 for sure. We're going to win back the house at the very least. There was just a there was just a poll that came out recently that there are 120 seats um, available that are running in Congress in 2018 that um, Donald Trump won by 20 points or more. And we know in Pennsylvania, we just flipped Pennsylvania right, in a state Lamb. where he won 20 points 20 or more, points, yeah. right? So mm-hmm. if we take that example, which was... Uh, we never thought we would win it's that good house. Direction. We have 120 seats. We only need 23 seats to flip the house. So I think the house is looking very likely. The Senate more complicated, but potentially. So when we flip one of those things, one of those houses, the House or the Senate, we have to come with vision. We cannot be. We cannot do the same thing that the Republicans did, which was be the party of obstruction, and then when they get into power, have absolutely, absolutely no vision. Um, I don't think we are there. I think I think w- the resistance knows that we have to not only resist, but we have to put forward a, a vision and a plan. Um, and and why I think that will happen as well is I think that personally, I think the Democratic Party um, needs to step out of the way and get the fuck out because they just tend to sh- fuck shit yeah, up. Yeah. And and the people will do that. This this resistance is being led by the people. Yeah. It's not being led by a party. And so the people will have the vision for the country that they want. And the Women's March, you know, Donald Trump gets elected, enter the Women's March, <laughs> has been a big part of of um, redefining that culture mm-hmm. um, and what it's going to take and putting forth a plan. And, and I think also like articulating a vision of who we are mm-hmm. and who we are together. I've really appreciated that about um, the way in which the Women's March has been, you know, um, steadfast mm-hmm. in standing for an inclusive and intersectional vision of who we are in America. Um, and um, it's been complicated mm-hmm. <laughs> being in the resistance, right? It hasn't always been roses and marches and wins. It's been complicated and there's been conflict and infighting. Um, and and I know the Women's March has come under fire a bunch of times, which, you know, I think for any bold leader who steps to the front of the line and takes a risk, they're always going to come under fire. Um, but, you know, Some of that conversation, I think, has been productive, and some of it has been downright hostile, Mm -hmm. quite frankly. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm wondering, you know, as we put forth this vision of what comes next and who we want to be together, you know, what is the practice of holding people accountable with love Mm. as opposed to like tearing people down and getting famous for, you know, bullying people on social media. Like there's a lot of that happening on the left. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think there's, um, the woke purity test, (laughs) which is like people have to walk through, um, which, uh, I think is tell that to us step by step, please. (laughs) Is pretty much some bullshit. Like I I think people, and leaders, um, let's just start with people. People make mistakes, right? And and humans make mistakes yeah. all the time. That's just what we do. That's what we do. And the question becomes: when we make a mistake, how do we deal with our mistake? And I think the way in which we deal with our mistake, for the most part, this takedown culture is a very dangerous place, obviously. But for the most part, how we deal with our mistake will affect the outcome of what comes next. 
Um, so we were talking about this earlier, but Louis C.K. in the Me Too movement, he was accused of sexual harassment, pretty horrible sexual harassment very early on in the Me Too moment. Um, and I respect the fact that he came out the next day and put out a statement and said, yes, I did this. Yes, I was wrong. I have to figure out myself in this moment. I'm going to go away. There was no yes, but it was yes, 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 and yes. Mm -hmm. So he did that. And that allowed me as a woman who has had her own experience in sexual harassment and such to say, you know what? I'm interested in having a conversation with you Mm -hmm. because I know that we can't, we can't just tear everyone down in that moment and destroy them all. Mm -hmm. We have to have conversation. There have to be consequences. I believe in restorative justice in Mm -hmm. all aspects, right? So in this moment, in this, this is a very personal moment where we have to say, okay, I want to, I want to put into practice what I believe. So I want to have a conversation with someone that admitted his mistake and admitted he was completely wrong without excuses and teach you, make you a better man. Um, because ultimately, I think so many conversations that I've had with men around this concept is they say, I didn't know. I didn't know it was that bad. And we as women say, how the fuck could you not know? Like, what what planet do you live under? That's right. But that same conversation that comes out when black people say, this is my experience, and white people say, I didn't know. I had no clue. And black folks are like, what the fuck? How could Where you have not? you been? Exactly. So like the... It, if you are the oppressed, most of the time, the oppressor has no idea what's going on, yeah. right? And, and, and we understand that in like very fragmented circumstances, but it can be applied pretty much across the board. So again, I think we need to be having those open conversations and be open to a mentor of mine who was um, one of the leaders of the anti-apartheid movement in, in South Africa, the Black Consciousness Movement. He said, Tim Nubaini said, it is the responsibility of those that are conscious to walk others through the door of consciousness Mm -hmm. at all times. Mm -hmm. And so that's where we are. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think that that is a more productive place in which to take this movement because we will grow with vision as opposed to just tearing down and destroying. um, And we'll be able to to learn, heal, and be better. Well, and lift one another up, right? Mm -hmm. We were talking with Toronto Burke a couple weeks back, and and she was also saying that, like, this wasn't her vision for me too, Mm -hmm. right? Like, tearing down the patriarchs is not tearing down the patriarchy. Mm -hmm. And that there has to be a place for healing in all of this, or else we don't move forward and act, right? So then we just create a lot of disruption and a lot of pain um, and hold people accountable, right? And, And I think disruption is necessary, but, like, where is the place for healing? Where is the place for forgiveness? Where is the place for redemption how do we learn from each other how do we have because I think you know what you're naming before around for so many people who because of their privilege they can't see mm-hmm. right like it's blindness in many ways you know we need a, a I think a practice and a resilience to like lean in make mistakes get back up start over stay in relationship stay on the front line stay engaged right make mistakes again get back up. and that's what I love about what Louis CK did too right like he fell on the sword he said fuck I did that mm-hmm. um, I'm gonna do my work mm-hmm. and he like went to do his work by himself and didn't mm-hmm. air it all over the media mm-hmm. right and didn't make a whole publicity stunt of it um and I'm not saying he's like the beacon of how this should be done, but I do think that there's something to be learned from the way in which we can model for one another. Totally. 
um, that practice and also the way in which we can support one another, even if you are the person holding that person accountable, like, can you hold them accountable with love? Mm-hmm. And, and again, like, I think, I think it was Sarah Silverman and I'm only bringing up oh, yeah. celebrities because they just are public and we know about their process, but she came out and she's like, she said, you know, I'm hurt and angry at him, but I still love him. And I think that that is all true. So one of the most dangerous things I think Donald Trump has done to us is that he has taken away our ability to be nuanced in conversations. Everything with him is right or wrong, yes or no, binary, win or lose. There is no gray. There is no conversation. And that's a very dangerous place to be. That is where where we find ourselves in this moment as well. You're great. You're holy. You're perfect. Oh, wait, you fucked up. I'm Tear them tearing down. you down, right? So what we need to do in the resistance as well is to not fall into that trap of black and white, of right and wrong, of nuance. Two truths can be held at the same time. Simultaneously. And that is extraordinarily important, and that is how we push forward. Um, so I think what we need to do in the resistance is to start resisting against the binary as well. And I feel like... Um you're doing that in some radical way with the resistance revival chorus (laughs) (laughs) to some extent. It's like, it's like, um, covert (laughs) heart opening, (laughs) ecstatic lovemaking through song and community and, um, joy and dance. And one of the things that I was mentioning to you before, was that I had a moment a couple of weeks ago in a session with you where I realized that I had like totally lost joy. Like <laughs> I couldn't find it anywhere. It, you know, it's like somewhere along the way I had dropped it. And then when someone tried, like inspired me to be joyful, like I couldn't locate it. Right. And I was like, when did that happen? Right. That like we got so serious, so intense, so committed, so fierce, um, all of which is good and important, um, but that we forgot um the the radical part of us mm-hmm. um, that can laugh and dance and sing in the face of oppression and mm-hmm. I loved what you were saying about the um, the immigrant community before around how like in some ways that's the most radical thing that they're doing mm-hmm. they're like we're gonna fight and we're gonna have fun mm-hmm. and we're gonna be joyful and we're not gonna lose our center mm-hmm. and our wholeness yes so like w- what we like to say in the resistance revival chorus is that joy is an act of resistance and I firmly believe that to be the case um, because when you're able to take away joy from a person you're able to take away so much of their power you're able to take away so much of their resilience because without joy you can only resist for so long before you break and while I'm smart I'm not that smart so the concept of the chorus I I disagree (laughs) deeply with that well the concept of the chorus I should say was not mine alone Um, it was actually we were in Mr. Harry Belafonte's office during the Women's March and he came in to visit us and I had the opportunity to sit down with him there's a great picture of Mateo in my lap talking with Mr. B at his desk and we were just having a great time and, and I got to ask him his advice He's 90. At that time, he was 90. So I asked him about art and music and, and, and resisting and activism because that's what he did and that's what I am doing. And he said to me, he said, when the movement is strong, the music is strong. 
And I thought that that was so brilliant and so perfect because it's absolutely true. The movement, and I'm not just talking about this movement, but I'm talking about like we go back to Black Lives Matter um, that has been in this movement and this struggle for years and years and years. And, And you can see the direct effect of Black Lives Matter starting and how that pushed literally, in this case, music forward. There would be no lemonade without Black Lives Matter, right? There would be no Kendrick Lamar without Black Lives Matter. There would would be no Black Panther without Black Lives Matter. And there would be, um, there would not be two incredible revolutionary portraits of Michelle Obama and Barack Obama without Black Lives Matter. And that is the direct link of when the movement is strong, the music is strong, mm-hmm. right? So so I think we're starting to see that right now with regards to the women's movement and the feminist movement. And we're starting to see how the movement is inf- influencing and creating art, um, which is exciting. And so with that concept in mind, I came back to, to five of my other co-founders of the Resistance Revival Chorus. And we said, you know, let's do something with music. Let's see what happens if we bring together women and music. And so we put out a call on Facebook and we were to, to professional musicians, most of them, and said, hey, we wanted to get together and sing in community. Come join us. The first rehearsal, 30 women showed up and it was so special and so beautiful. And everyone felt healed and empowered and everyone was like, this is amazing. Next week we had another rehearsal, a different 60 women showed up and we were like, wow, Holy okay, hell. this is something. Something's happening. Something's happening. And I was like, I want to do a video. Like, let's launch this to the world with a video and we're going to do a takeover in Times Square. So we did a takeover in Times Square. We sang two resistance songs from the 60s. Um, and the video went viral and then we were like, there's something here. And so since then we've been doing monthly shows in New York city. They're called the resistance revival nights where we bring the chorus together, but we also bring female musicians and we do a two hour set of resistance songs and it's joyful. And we also talk politics and joy and politics and joy. And both of those things again can exist in the same world and in the same moment where you can be laughing and then you can be talking about organizing around DACA. Um, And the success of the chorus has been pretty extraordinary. And I think it's because people realize, like you, they want joy in their life. They need joy in their life. We can't survive or sustain this without it. Mm -hmm. I really believe that. And we can't feel guilty about laughing and dancing and having joy. We we need that. Yeah. What were the songs we were singing in jail? So, we yeah. had like a five hour. We were yes. we were in jail for a very long time. It was like so we we pulled we every song, the bathroom. every civil rights song out of the archive. Yeah, yeah. No, we were singing. So we were singing um, Ella's song, uh, which is a song, an original song by Sweet Honey and the Rock. Um, and so, and then we also sang Rich Man's House, which is a union song inspired by the union. And then we sang Woke Up This Morning, which is, um, oh, also, mm-hmm. so one of my, one of the best things that's happened, and I'll be brief with the story, but the chorus comes and rehearses at the house. And here? So, yeah, here. Nice. 30 women show up here. <laughs> I mean, Mateo is here most of the time. And so his favorite song is Woke Up This Morning. So every night when I'm putting him to sleep, I sing him Woke Up This Morning. And and he says, Mama, will you sing me Hallelujah? That's what he calls it. (laughs) But it's extraordinary for me every night as a reminder and for him to hear every night these words. And the lyrics are, I'm not a singer, ironically, so I'm not going to sing, but I will say the words, which is, woke up this morning with my mind staying on freedom. Woke up this morning with my mind staying on freedom. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. And then the next verse is, ain't no harm with my mind stayed on freedom. Mm. Ain't no harm with my mind stayed on freedom. I'm singing and dancing with my mind stayed on freedom. 
I'm singing and shouting with my mind stayed on freedom. And those words to say every day, every night, is, has become my personal mantra of focus. Um, and, and to be able to share that with Mateo at nighttime is extraordinary. I love it. Yeah. Paula, thank you so, so much. This has been amazing. I, I'm so inspired and grateful for the way in which you lead us with so much grace and empathy and fierceness. Well, thank you, Carrie, for all the things you do. You bring in your community into spaces and worlds that are making them stretch. And that is how we move forward. And, and you are an incredible ally. You, you put your body on the line. You have difficult conversations. And I think your role of being a bridge is critical as we move forward in being able to tap into two communities and bring those communities together. Because that's the only way that we win. That is the purpose and the point of intersectionality. Yeah. Thank you. We are reimagining a citizenship where everyone belongs. And that calls us to fight for the 11 million undocumented immigrants living in the U.S. Among them, 800,000 young people are living in fear because of the DACA crisis. An attack on immigrants is an attack on all of us. We need to fight to keep our families together and ensure the well-being of everyone. Please make it a practice of your citizenship to demand permanent protection, dignity, and respect for our undocumented communities. You can learn more about how to engage at fairimmigration.org and unitedwedream.org. While this podcast is coming to an end, our work in the world is just beginning. This week's call to action is to show up with joy. Be fierce in your activism and resistance, but steadfast in your expression and self-care. You can follow Paola at Twitter at Paola Mendoza. And the Resistance Revival course is not to be missed. Check out their schedule at Resistance Rev on Twitter. Special thanks to our producer, Trevor Exter, and DJ Drez for the amazing soundtrack. You can check out his music at djdrez.com. And thank you for being here today. You can stay in the know and engaged by subscribing to our weekly newsletter, Well Read, at citizenwell.org. Citizen Podcast is community-inspired and crowd-sourced. That's how we keep it real. Join our community on Patreon for as little as $1 per month so that we can keep doing the work of curating content that matters for citizens who care. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes and share the love by telling your friends to check us out. <laughs>